Welcome to episode 318 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're still on this law, well, mostly law, a little bit of gospel, because you got to get that pairing together whenever you're talking about the law. And we're kind of taking a turn, if you may, or maybe exiting the highway of the law slightly. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about theonomy, probably about the garden, about church and culture, but mostly about theonomy. So about everybody theonomy. get triggered and get excited because yeah. that conversation is coming into your ears very shortly. But of course, first, it is the regular principle of our podcasting, which means we've got to stand with our Reformed brothers and sisters in tradition and in history and in posterity by affirming with and denying against some things. And this episode is no different. So let's affirm. What are you affirming with today? So this is just sort of a sneaky way for me to talk about EFS. So I'm affirming Orthodox Trinitarianism. So I had a conversation with someone online the other day, and you know it's been a while since we've had like a good EFS conversation, I feel like. And um, they brought up one of the frequently quoted, misquoted um, statements from Reformed figures allegedly showing that EFS is historic and Orthodox and even Reformed. And so they brought up a quote from Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Uh, it's on page 89. Uh, it looks like 88 into 89. And I'm going to read the whole quote. And what I want to do is I just want to explain why this isn't EFS. Because EFS is not just... I'll explain it once I've, once I've finished reading it. So the, the quote here, um, starting on page 88 and going into 89, the subsistence and operations of the three persons in the divine being is marked by a certain definite order. There's a certain order in the ontological trinity. In personal subsistence, the Father is first, the second, uh, the Son second, and the Holy Spirit third. It need hardly be said that this order does not pertain to any priority of time or essential dignity, but only to the logical order of derivation. The Father is neither begotten by nor proceeds from any other person. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Generation and procession take place within the divine being and imply a certain subordination as to the manner of personal subsistence, but no subordination as far as the possession of the divine essence is concerned. This ontological trinity and its inherent order is the metaphysical basis of the economic trinity. It is by but natural, therefore, that the order existing in the essential trinity should be reflected in the opera ad extra that are more particularly ascribed to each one of the persons. Scripture clearly indicates this order in the so-called preposition distinctionales, ec, dia, and en, which are used in expressing the idea that all things are out of the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you can probably see, or the, the, the listener can see that there's this phrase in the middle that says it implies a certain subordination as to the manner of personal subsistence, but no subordination as far as the possession of the divine essence is concerned. And so what happens is people point at that and go, see, that's EFS. Well, EFS is not just about subordination. When you read the EFS advocates closely and um, when you read them carefully, what you see is that EFS is about the subordination, but it's also about this weird um, movement that they make where the identity of the persons is not grounded in the internal operations, the opera ad intra, but it's grounded in the economic trinity, the opera ad extra. And so rather than ground the order of the operations ad extra, the operations add extra ground the internal operations. So Orthodox Trinitarianism has a movement from the ad intra to the ad extra. So the ad extra uh, work or operations of the Trinity reflects the already eternally existing ad opera order of the Trinity. EFS inverts that. So you have to be careful. You can't just, and this is where people like Owen Strahan, Wayne Grudem, Wayne Grudem especially, but um, Bruce Ware Lesser, he's a little bit more systematic and, and a bit more articulate than the others. This is where they go wrong though, is they they just pull this quote and go, look, see subordination, subordination in order, but not subordination in essence or dignity. Well, first of all, the order is just talking about first, second, third. It's a logical order of personal identity, not a logical order that has something to do with 
subordination or authority or hierarchy or anything like that. It's just a, it's just a logical order. But secondly, they fail to recognize that they're arguing precisely the opposite of what someone like Burkhoff is. So I'm just I'm affirming Orthodox Trinitarianism because time and time again, when you look at the quotes that are being pulled out by the EFS advocates, you find this this phenomena. They actually are arguing exactly the opposite of what the quote that they're using says. Owen Strahan has an article where he pulls this long uh, quote out of um, Augustine against uh, um, um, it's an Arian named Maximinius. And actually, uh, Strahan's theology looks closer to the Arian Maximinius's theology. And the quotes that he pulls out of Augustine are actually arguing against Maximinius, not arguing for the subordination that Maximinius is arguing for. So you just have to be careful. And I'm just using my affirmations today to sort of show it's really important just to read historical sources in their context and understand the nuances and the details. And since it's been a little while since we've gone through EFS, as the kids would say, it's been a minute since we had a good EFS rant, just to oversimplify, maybe bring us back to the center of what this means. We all know, and the Bible teaches that the incarnate son is submitting to the father, but is his submission something that extends to his internal role relationship as son? In other words, is the son subordinate to the father from all eternity? Or you might ask it in a slightly different way. Is there authority and submission within the inner life of the Trinity, even before creation and redemption? Right. That is what EFS is asking. Yes. And proponents would say, yes. And opponents like us would say, no way. So yeah. opponents say submission slash subordination necessarily entails two wills, which is really what you're going back to time and time again. That's the center of this debate. Yep. And to have submission, you have to have one will submitting to the other, but the triune God has only one will. So just to bring everybody back up to speed, hopefully that helps inform some of what you're saying, because there's a lot of technicality in what you just said. But the center of that are some really simple principles that can help guide us yeah. into those offshoots of the more technical details. Yeah. And you have to, you have to remember, th this is what I'm, I'm learning. You know, it's been what, six years now since the EFS controversy really heated up in 2016. The eternal functional subordination position or eternal submission of the sun or eternal relations of authority and submission, whatever the, whatever the new, you know, acronym happens to be today at almost every single point of orthod of, of Trinitarian theology, they get it, they get it wrong. And that may sound like a really strong statement, um, but but in point of fact, the only real point of contact that Orthodox Trinitarianism has and um, EFS Trinitarianism, if you want to call it that, has is that there's a father, a son, and the spirit. But the relationship between the three, you know, the the aseity of the Trinity is called into question with EFS, where they make they make the identity of the persons dependent on creation. Owen Strahan does that explicitly in Grand Design. Uh, Wayne Grudem does it a little bit less explicitly in Systematic Theology. Um, it, almost every point of Trinitarianism, they invert or get wrong. Um, and it, that, that's a different conversation for a different show. And I'm sure we'll have that conversation again. It's not going anywhere. But it's just important to remember, just because you see the word subordination in a classic source, right. unless we're talking about a source that was written after this kind of these new categories of subordinationism of functional subordinationism came came into sort of being in in the I think it was like the 70s and 80s unless they're writing after that it's really not safe to assume that they're saying the same thing because in most cases they're not there are a few historic sources Hilary of Poitiers comes pretty close to um to what Strahan teaches in some places. Um, he comes pretty close to what William Lane Craig teaches in some places. So it's not that these views are utterly absent, even among Orthodox writers, but they were anomalies and they usually were um, either corrected or they are sort of a happy inconsistency. Whereas e modern EFS, they just get Trinitarianism wrong just about on every single point. So it's just bad news. It is some bad news. Something worth people going back and listening to. We've had some really, I think, helpful, hopefully helpful yeah. conversations in the back catalog about all this stuff. And it's just worth knowing, I, I say you don't have to wait into, you can actually wait into the the level and magnitude of the technical details as much as suits your personality and interest. That's okay. But it is helpful, like you said, to understand what we mean by subordination. That itself is not a pejorative yeah. term. 
the scriptures tell us something about the subordination of the son in you know his earthly ministry in giving himself over to the will of the father but the question is how far do we tease that thread all the way back to the ontological nature that would be Arianism, everybody is like keeping track of heresies, scoring heresies at home. That's Arianism. But beyond that, there is this kind of thread, this stream that's come out, which says, well, listen, that submission must necessarily extend to the eternal role in relationship. Right. And there we say, ooh. Yeah, that's no good. Yeah. So what what are you affirming today? So we don't we don't turn this into another EFS episode. Not that that wouldn't be delightful, but what what's not what we're talking about today. So what are you affirming today? It would be absolutely delightful. And, and given just the nature of your affirmation being kind of fun and technical and getting us back to that. I mean, EFS is like the popcorn and coconut oil, right? It's true. Of theological yeah. affirmation slash denials. Yeah. But uh, so I'm going to pivot a little bit because we that, that's something deep and heady and people should look into that. So I'm going to go a different direction, keep it a little bit light. So I think once before in our conversations, I affirmed with all these amazing websites, which allow you to track things that like in another world, in another time, you never be able to track and maybe you don't have a lot of value to the average person and yet are super interesting and fun. And of course, if you're living in the world right now, you've no doubt come across post COVID this all these different supply constraints, all these different things are changing in our world, getting goods and services that we're used to or we took for granted or we thought were normative and found out, oh my goodness, there's a lot that takes place to get something to your door, uh, you know, whether that's food or the Amazon package. And one of those big things is just the travel of goods and services across the world via water. And I came across this website recently that just gave me a greater appreciation for that. It's called marinetraffic.com. And if you've nice. ever thought to yourself, you know what? I'd like to track every single ship right now, every kind of seafaring vessel that is navigating the world. This is your opportunity to do that. So uh, I'm going to pack Holy in two practice. affirmations here. One is that website, Marine Traffic. It's just fun. This is interesting. It gives you appreciation for the things that are traveling across the world, mostly where those are vehicles or parts or food, bananas, whatever, coming into your life. The second thing is something that I think might be useful to many who listen to us. And that is, it's a website that allows you to create for free. There are subscriptions, but allows you to create for free what I would call kind of wiki style pages. Like you might want to post a recipe or maybe you're working on a project with a team. This website is called a notion, notion.so. And it's basically, again, a way to create without using HTML, simplified version of web pages. I'll just leave it at that so people can go check it out. I'll pique your curiosity if you're ever interested in like having a space where like, say you want to put something out there for your family. I don't know, a messages or even a blog style or notes or again, recipes to share with friends. This is a great way to do it so you can get it on the interwebs and you don't have, to have any technical skills to do it. So I found that this might fill a gap for certain people if they're trying to collaborate or share something. But you know, you don't want to do it on social media and you want a little bit of a more narrow place to put that information. So two affirmations of random websites just to provide a little bit more joy in your day and to make us worship God and, and praise him by saying, what a time to be alive. So I don't know if you know this, but there are two people, two kinds of people in the world. There are those who use Notion and then there are those who use Obsidian. So you you may have opened a giant can of worms with the Notion affirmation. So and did you know go. that that's like a big heat, heated debate in the note-taking community? There we go. No, is this this is kind of like West Side Story of note-taking? Yeah, yeah. we're going to go fight the Notion people. The, you got to do this. Great this, sound this, effect. The forward snaps. I don't know why they were forward snaps, but they're forward snaps in West Side but, Story. Well, because that's the aggressive snap. It is. It that's is. That's a threatening snap. You don't. That's if true. it's at your side, it's you're just keeping the beat. If it's coming at you, that's the kind that says, "If you want some, come and get some." It's come that kind of snap. Uh, I'm looking at this marine traffic uh, webpage, and it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> it is. It looks like uh, it looks like someone maybe sneezed on a map, and all of the splatter from your sneeze is actually a boat in the ocean, and there's like an unbelievable number of them all over the place. It's a little scary that all of this information about where all of these boats are is just available uh, to anyone who would desire to do harm to one of these boats. It seems like that should be more secret than it is, but yeah. 
such as our world. It is interesting. I'm with you. I think it at least gives you appreciation for the amount of traffic that's out there. You can mouse over all those little dots, all those little icons, and you can see some of them are fishing, some of them are tankers. It's super, super, super interesting. So I've been on this kick of, you know, tracking goods and services as it relates to economic activity. And of course, tankers are in many ways, tankers, large cargo ships, these are the predominant means. And they seem so outmooted, right? To think that something gets loaded on in a container and it drops in a ship and you can go out. There's all this amazing writing on just like people researching containers and how like dramatic that technology is yeah. in delivering goods and services. So just like an underappreciated part of our world, like this, these are the mundane things, actually the ordinary means, if you will, that really make life seem like we have access to everything, but it's, yeah. it's somebody inventing a, a, a container container to hold goods and services that gets put on a ship that goes around the world that ends up on your doorstep or in your fridge or in your life. It's true. It's true. Well, I'm going to move on to my denial. So this one's a little bit heavy. So uh, there is a movement in evangelicalism that we actually have done an episode on called deconstructionism. And uh, recently an apologist named Tyler Vela, who had a podcast called the Freed Thinker Podcast, was sort of in broadly reformed circles, um, there, there tends to be two kinds of like reformed circles. There's kind of like the systematic theology Bible nerd circles, and then there's the apologetics philosophy circles. And there's this little overlap in between where like Van Til lives most of the time. And Tyler was in sort of the reformed apologetics circles, had a pretty, uh, vibrant apologetics ministry, um, did lots of debates about justification and all sorts of things. And he just recently announced that he's no longer a Christian. So I I don't really have anywhere to go from that except to say, you know, when I listen to his deconstruction announcement, which first of all, why, why, why are there, why is it necessary to make announcements? Like it seems like a hallmark of this deconstruction movement is that you have to, you have to make a big fanfare of the fact that you're not a Christian anymore. But when you listen to his, um, listen to his announcement. Um, it is just dripping with disdain for God, particularly for God, the father, like he's rejected the Trinity. He's, or maybe, I don't know if he would say rejected. I think he would just say he no longer accepts. Um, he doesn't find it intellectually tenable anymore, but there are statements that he makes during this, um, episode where basically it's like, I don't believe in God anymore, but I don't really like him very much. And he didn't give me what he owes me. It's kind of the feel of, of the episode. Um, he talks about how he spent a year or more kind of begging God for assurance and for comfort and to satisfy his, um, his need for something and God didn't give it to him. And so that, that was sort of like the, the jumping off point for him was that if, if God is who he said he was, or if God is who he says he is, then he should be comforting Tyler in this, whatever this is. So I don't, I don't want to cast dispersions on Tyler as a person. Um, he and I have interacted a few times. He seems like a nice guy and he's a sharp dude. Um, but this deconstruction movement, I think we would all do well to take a step back, especially for those of us who are maybe a little bit more intellectually motivated to take a step back and recognize if our religion is not experimental, which just means if it's not experiential, if it's not an experienced religion, if if there's no warm sense of piety that drives your theological exercises, um, if it if it is or is becoming a cold sort of a cold exercise in theology um, and doesn't have any shoe leather, that's a dangerous place to be. And I think that's where we see most of these deconstruction narratives ends up is that Christianity was some sort of um, it was some sort of prop to their life for Tyler's sake case. It seems like he had a genuine, a genuine connection to the church. I mean, theologically we would say he didn't have a genuine faith and he never had a genuine faith. Um, I don't think he would say that, but I, I, you know, um, but it seems like Christianity was itching a theological and an intellectual scratch for him or scratching a theological intellectual itch for him. And then things in his life caused him to start to question that. And there was no foundation or, or grounding in his experience to root his, his faith in. And so he, his faith just kind of evaporated. 
So it's a sad thing. It's a serious thing. And I think all of us would do well to heed Peter's words to, you know, make our calling and election sure, to really investigate and examine whether we're in the faith. And if you are a person who who is feeling like you are going to deconstruct, which is a little bit weird way to say it, but if you're you're having doubts and questions, I think that the the I mean, I don't know Tyler's whole story, but in his deconstruction narrative, when he talked about how he wrestled with the faith, he never like the thing that was really missing from the account was like pastoral counseling. It doesn't doesn't seem like, at least from what he's publicly shared, that there was much in the way of him going to his pastor. And this may not be right, but this is this is the narrative he put forth publicly. There doesn't seem to be much in the account about him wrestling with this with his pastor, with the elders at his church. Um, it seems like this was very much a personal wrestling that just failed. So if if you're in that place where you're starting to ask questions, questions are okay. God is not afraid of your questions. But it's important for you to wrestle through those things under the guidance and direction and shepherding of your pastors, not just not just old dead white guys that you read on the shelf, right? It's not just Bob Inc. isn't gonna Bob Inc. isn't gonna stop you from deconstructing. Bob Inc. can't pray for you. Bob Inc. or Turretin or Calvin, they they don't care about you. They're dead. They they don't have any direct knowledge of you or any direct investment, except perhaps in some sort of like mystical communion of the saints way, but we don't have any reason to think that they're aware of individual Christians and interceding for them or anything like that. Um, your pastor is the person that that should be there to help you through this. So I don't have anything else to say about that. It's just sort of a sad situation. Um, there's also a, a guy, I think his name is Cameron Bertuzzi. He had a, a podcast called Capturing Chris, Christianity, I think, or Captivating Christianity, something like that. And he just announced that he is converting to Roman Catholicism. And there's there's a common theme that happens where it's, Oh, I wrestled with this for so long and I finally just gave into it. But there's almost always absent from that real active engagement with their pastor on the issues at hand, um, real active engagement by their elders and their the people who are tasked with shepherding their souls. So pray pray for Tyler. I mean, I, I know we've done episodes on apostasy before and and there are differing opinions on on how much we should be invested in trying to kind of recapture the apostate. But pray for Tyler. I think it's important for the church to recognize that um, someone who appears to be an apostate may not actually be an apostate. We, we won't know that for sure until the last day. Um, but yeah, it's a sad thing. Here's my hot take on deconstructions. Am everybody ready for this? So I take issue to begin with at the use of that word because yeah. if you understand philosophy, which I understand very little of philosophy— but on this particular point, it's clear that deconstructionism is a proper term in philosophy, and it refers to a theory of criticism that actually seeks to expose deep-seated contradictions right. in a work by going into the nuances and understanding the interrelation of those nuances against one another, again, presumably to illustrate demonstratively and observably that there is contradiction. So I don't even think this is, it's just a misnomer. Somehow that word got appropriated for this idea of somebody turning around on a conviction. It's not deconstructionism. And what I think is critical to the idea of this deconstructionism as people are using it is that it never actually presents a solution. In other words, if you're going to come forward and say, I find this view untenable, what you'll find is often nobody presents a counter view that continues to explain cogently everything else in the world in terms of how it works. But instead, this idea is just designed to show that I'm going to posit that I know more than what I thought I was taught or what I believed before, or like you said, to kind of just announce to the world, perhaps in some way of you know, kind of exploring or demonstrating vanity that this is different and that I can stand against it. This is somebody saying, well, what I think or I believe or I feel now is not comporting with the scriptures. So I have like a general beef with the way that people describe this because it sounds like we talked about before high and mighty as if somebody is coming to bear now this great deconstructionism, which is this hegemony of philosophical thought, which has priority and primacy over all the ways of understanding the world and analyzing things. And we find that when we bring our, the Bible underneath it, it collapses. That's just not true. And yeah. in addition, I would say that I'm just not surprised by these things. I think because of the internet and because of somewhat celebrity, even in Christian evangelical circles, that this just seems more important and more grand and grandiose than it actually is. Because every day there are people that for whatever reason 
have come into the quote-unquote Christian faith, maybe it's because there was something about the family ties, the communal feel, or the familial sensibilities that brought them in, or because it was intellectually stimulating, or because they saw something in it that spoke to a felt need in their lives. And they found that just like Jesus spoke about in all his parables of the seeds, that it wasn't for them. And so I just know that our God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son who secures our salvation, the Holy Spirit who applies it, never is an author of half a story. And so as there are just as many people who would say, quote unquote, deconstructing their faith and saying, you know what, turns out I'm not down with this thing. It's not my jam at all. There are equal number of people whom God is arresting their hearts and bringing them into the family, but the power of his will and his mighty outstretched arm. And so I kind of say, where, where are the stories about those people? But of course, it's because somebody who has some influence, particularly in the online sphere, can stand up and say, you know what, this thing that I once believed and thought before, I do not do so any longer. I just find that there's like a disproportionate emphasis. And of course, like we ought to pray always and in every way for those who are quote unquote turning away from the faith. But I'm just, uh, there's no reason to be surprised anymore, is there? Because it, yeah. we would expect, even just by way of like sampling human beings, that this kind of thing would happen. And of course, Jesus speaks about tears in the wheat. And we shouldn't be surprised that the tears in the wheat exist in every facet of quote unquote evangelicalism, whether it's those sitting in the pews or those online or those podcasting, which is why like we always, at least as the Reformed theology understands it, submit to God and his will and say, God, you never deliver up the baby to be left on the doorstep. And so all of our salvation is secured and held tight by the grasp of God himself. And so these things are sad I just think that they are more reflections, not of somebody who has undergone great tragedy or that there is a tragic effect or impact here, except for the fact that all of us are rebellion in rebellion against God, save from his mighty work and his arresting of our hearts and opening our eyes. So I, I say, pray for everybody and pray for yourself, because in this way, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but I'm saying we ought to have great doxology in the fact that what God secures he brings forward into perseverance. And my if this was like, if you're reading this, I'd have a little a little uh, footnote right now. Not an end note, a little <laughs> footnote that would say, go back to our recent conversation about perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that dour note, I think we should probably move on to our topic, which is always going to be um, tricky to talk about theonomy for a number of reasons that I'm sure we'll get to. But the the topic of the day is theonomy. So we're going into this little series now, which is part of this broader series in all things systematic theology. We talked about the nature of God's law. Um, we've also talked about kind of the application of God's law uh, in preaching, uh, particularly. We did a little bit of talk about the law gospel distinction. Um, and now we're getting into sort of this idea of how does the law and how does the church particularly interact with culture? So right now, Christian nationalism is like all the rage hot topic everywhere online because of this book that was recently published, which just to be honest with you, I haven't read, but what I have read in excerpt form just sounds insane. Um, but theonomy is a little different than Christian nationalism in some ways. And I thought it would be good for us to start with this. Um, it, it is, uh, we're going to put, I'm going to put just a little pause on no Doug Wilson November, uh, because Doug Wilson is probably one of the more prominent um, advocates of theonomy in sort of the reformed adjacent world. Um, Doug Wilson is not reformed, but he exists kind of on the periphery of the reformed consciousness, if we want to call that, the reformed, I don't know, blogosphere. Um, and he's a major proponent of it. And he asserts something called general equity the theonomy, which will We'll probably talk about it in a little bit here. Um, you'd also recognize names like James uh, Jeff Durbin, James White, um, sort of recently in the last year, maybe two years, has embraced the the theonomic view, which is especially strange as a Baptist. Um, you also hear names like Joel McDermott, um, Gary North, and then Greg Bonson is kind of the granddaddy theonomist of all of them. So if you're if you're in conversations about theonomy, those are kind of the big names contemporary names and then historic names that you need to really recognize. You also see people like Rush Dooney come up. Um, and as you get further back, um, theonomy as a movement, like a definable movement, probably uh, you'd see someone like Bonson or Gary North 
kind of as the the figurehead of that of the movement as a movement that's again kind of like efs that's not to say there aren't people throughout history that express views that are similar to theonomy um but also a lot of times you, there's a difference between christendom and theonomy as well uh so we'll get into some of that not all of it but i wanted to kind of lay the groundwork because theonomy is almost hard to even define what you're talking about when you when you introduce the topic so i wanted just to give a quick definition this is a definition from joel mcdermott on his website lambsrain.com um it says theonomy is the biblical teaching that the mosaic law contains perpetual moral standards for living including some civil laws which remain obligatory for today and then greg bonson in his book theonomy in christian ethics uh, has a, in the section called thesis, he has the heading of one of his chapters that says the abiding validity of the Mosaic law in exhaustive detail or something along those lines. So theonomy, broadly speaking, is the view, and this is important, that the civil law, particularly of the Mosaic economy, is still in force and to be the structure and the rubric for um, civil laws today. So uh, the reason I'm highlighting the civil law is because it's not, theonomy isn't just God's law. God's law applies everywhere in life. A lot of different views would say with different perspectives on what that means, that God's law, broadly speaking, is still the structure which should govern how we rule society or how we govern society. Um, theonomy is particularly focused on the application of the Mosaic law, and especially where it's distinct is the application of the Mosaic law in reference to the civil law, which most positions would say the civil law was for national Israel and most of the most of the civil law expired along with national Israel. So I wanted to get that kind of broad definition out there because it's it's important to know what we're talking about when we get into conversations about theonomy. By the way, the astute listener has already noted something, and that is that I got so fired up in my rant against deconstructionism that you just plowed over my denial, but that's okay. We're going to move oh, forward into the topic. <laughs> I thought deconstructionism was, yeah. I yeah, thought no, you jumped into. That's fair. I, yeah, it, it was good. I, we, you just deconstructed basically my denial, which is fine. I because we should get denial, into this. Yeah, did. we should get into this, this topic. So yeah, I think this is helpful because uh, this is wading into a little bit of treacherous waters, not necessarily because of the topic, but because I can already see the mail. Like I can already see the email box filling up with people saying all kinds of different things, especially if they have some kind of tendencies toward theonomy, which may not all be destructive or unhelpful. But let me just reiterate what you said, which is this is a bit like uh, some other things in theology where there's probably more flavors than are sitting under the case at Baskin Robbins here. There's just so many different little nuances. And I like what you said. When we define this, in some ways, this word can get tricky because I've heard people use this very innocently, like the idea of theonomy. And sometimes what they mean is that it's simply this idea of an adherence to God's law, which would make all Christians, and especially Reformed Christians, into theonomists. However, right. when you see this word used, generally we're talking about something that's a lot more narrow than that. It's this idea or school of thought within Reformed theology often, which prefers literal specific, like detailed applications of the Mosaic civil laws to modern civil government. So it's right. not just the idea that the Mosaic law is in play. It's definitely in play, but it's like in play in a particular, very literal means. And I would say that the Theonomist prefers that. That gives us a little bit of room around the idea because I would say like at points, there are Theonomists like the rest of us, they're applying the law in a general non-literal way, but there is a tendency more than the rest of us to prefer some specific and literal interpretation. So th with that said, what makes this so difficult, and I'm just hedging all the more as we get open on this, <laughs> is that it's not really defined really clear. There's no clear-cut yeah. hermeneutic in this. There's yeah. nothing that prescribes like an answer to every evangelical question or exegetical question. So theonomists differ much among themselves, really, as to how the civil laws are to be applied. Like if you talk to a, a, a true theonomist who's really committed to this idea, you're going to get lots and maybe for everyone you talk to a different slight interpretation of application of the actual literal specifics. And the difference between theonomists, more the conventional reform thinkers, is not sharp, but it's kind of fuzzy in that way. So there is like an emphasis and a tendency as I can hedge more toward like that literal interpretation. So 
this is the last thing I'll say, and then we can actually talk about it. This is like the prolegomena. So whether the theonomist tendency or the more conventional or form tendency is correct, here's how I would say that you can probably properly think about those in a rubric. This is my opinion, just my opinion. It depends upon, not upon like general theological principles, but on the exegesis of specific passages. This has yeah. been really helpful to me to kind of categorize or classify these two views. So if on investigation, the best exegesis finds that these texts weren't highly specific, literal, and detailed applications, then we'd have to say that the theonomist is correct. If, on the other hand, the exegesis is more commonly pointing to the other way, a general application, then we'd have to say that the theonomist is incorrect. So again, it comes down to, I would say, mosaic law, literal interpretation, and specific application. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, one of the things that's hard about theonomy is most theonomists that I've encountered, this, I mean, it's theonom theonomic Baptist is sort of a weird, weird category that I can't quite get my head around. Most theonomists are coming out of the Westminster tradition. And so this might be a little bit pejorative, but I don't really care. The theonomist position functions kind of like a parasite on the Westminster Confession. Ooh. And so they tend to latch on to certain elements of chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession. And so it's hard because there's no um, distinctly theonomic confession to draw boundaries around what theonomy even is. So you'll have some theonomists who will say um, blasphemy, uh, the, the entire first table of the law should right. be punished according to the mosaic the mosaic uh, administration. So blasphemy should be punishable by death. Uh, Sabbath breaking, punishable by death. Adultery, punishable by death. So they'll, they'll take the Ten Commandments as the moral law, and then they'll take the civil law, which also reflects on the Ten Commandments, and they'll take those punishments, the punitive or penalty uh, elements of the judicial law or the civil law, and they also want to apply those in society. But then you have some who will say, well, no, really it's just the second table of the law that we should be enforcing as, as you know, a Christian nation. And that's the other element about theonomy that's a little bit difficult to get your head around, is theonomy is almost entirely hypothetical for most of these people. Because what theonomy does is it attaches itself usually to post-millennialism and usually to a particular kind of post-millennial reconstructionism. And so they have in mind this future state where um, where the, the nations have been Christianized. They have a particular view of what it means to make disciples of all nations. The nations have been Christianized. The government has been populated by professing Christians and the laws of the, of the, uh, the nations will be shaped so much by the Christian's who now populate those heads of state that there's almost a blurring or um, in some instances, let's say like we just drop the book of Leviticus on top of like the constitution of the United States. Yes. And that may be extreme, but I've heard theonomists say it may be a little bit, um, maybe a little bit hyperbolically, but not, not all that much say things like, well, you just drop the old Testament mosaic economy, civil law on top of the constitution. And that's, that's the ideal situation, but almost nobody who is a theonomist would say that we're in a situation now where theonomic um, principles could actually be actualized, right? Because we don't have a Christian government. We don't have a Christian nation. And so in this situation, although the just law would be to um, execute blasphemers, because we don't have a Christian magistrate, we can't actually apply those. So, so that's the other tricky part is that when you start to talk to them, it sounds like they're really, really extreme, and they kind of are, but they're extreme in sort of this hypothetical sense that can't actually be brought about in the current situation. So it's it's hard to define theonomy because it it's sort of a, uh, like I said, it's sort of a parasite onto the Westminster Confession of Faith. And what I mean by that is not... Not anything super pejorative. I mean, I know that like that there's no way to not be pejorative when you call something a parasite, but I'm not saying <laughs> that it's like wicked or evil, but it, it right. attaches itself to the Westminster Confession. And most most people who actually subscribe to the Westminster Confession 
including historians who understand all the original context and all of the documents and have read all of the minutes of the Westminster Assembly, most people would say theonomy, at least as it's articulated by Bonson and those following him, is not what the Westminster Confession has in mind. That's not what the divines had in mind. And so it attaches itself to this confession. Side note, I know it's no 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 quarter November, November. Um, Federal Vision does very much the same thing, right? Doug Wilson very much just attaches himself to the Westminster Confession and says, well, everything that I'm teaching is just right in the Westminster Confession, but it's actually not. What that does is it gives cover to the theology to make it sound very orthodox and seem very orthodox and hard to sort of peel back the the layers of that. So, you know, the, the main contours of the theology, maybe before we start to talk about the, the reasons and the biblical reasons and the confessional reasons why we wouldn't hold to this theology, why it's not a not a proper Reformed theology, a proper Westminster theology. The broad contours are, it is attached to Reconstructionism and postmillennialism, and so it envisions this future state where the, the government and all of the nations are Christianized, and that's the context by which we can apply theonomic um, principles, we can apply the mosaic economy. It, to varying degrees, but one of the core principles is that the, the civil law Usually they deny sort of the threefold division of the Old Testament law almost in total. So they would say this idea that there's a moral law, civil law, and a judicial law or a, a ceremonial law, that's actually an artificial thing imposed on the text. Um, interesting enough, they still disregard most of the civil or ceremonial law, but they want to apply what we call the civil law, not just broadly, not just sort of in the common commonwealth sense but in specific details. And now what those specific details are, those vary from theonomist to theonomist. Um, and then they would also, they would also argue that from a number of new Testament passages, that this is the apostolic um, perspective. So they have a particular reading on Romans 13, where they would say that when Paul says that um, the magistrate is God's servant to punish evil doing, that the only way that that, the civil magistrate can be God's servant to punish evil doing is if they're applying God's law as God's law is written. So there is also a denial or maybe not a denial, but a diminishing of general revelation of natural theology, natural revelation, um, which goes right hand in hand with sort of James White's trajectory and how he's moving towards a, a more of a, a rejection or a, a downplaying of any sort of general revelation principles. Theonomy bears that out as well. And so they would say like, well, the only way you have access to God's moral precepts is through the Old Testament, where Reformed theology, well, we'll get into that, but they would say the only way you have access to God's moral precepts is through the written revealed word of God contained in the Old and New Testaments. Well, that's not, that's not what the confessional position holds. That's not what the Bible teaches. So maybe we can kind of pivot a little bit in our remaining time and talk about some of our, our concerns or some of the challenges or the biblical and confessional reasons why we wouldn't hold this theology. Sure. I mean, honestly, it sounds like you're already there. You don't need anything more from me. Go for it. Well, I mean, I think when you read through chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, it, it may actually seem at first like theonomy is a valid view, right? Because it talks about how um, the moral law doth forever bind, as well as justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, that not only in regard to the matters contained, but also in respect to the authority of God. So there's this section five where it's the moral law is in force, not only on Christians, but on all people. And it seems like we would look at it and go, well, the, the moral law, it, per, you know, the Westminster Confession teaches that the moral law persists. And then the, um, but it teaches that the ceremonial and the civil law don't. But they latch on to this one phrase. Um, I lost it now. This is great podcasting. Hold on a second. <laughs> there it is. Section four. To them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, them being Israel, which expired together with the state of that people. Right? So we're going, well, they expired. It says, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So this is where you get the concept of general equity theonomous. Right, that's what Doug Wilson would call himself. I think that's what Jeff Durbin would probably call himself, a general theonomy, uh, a general equity theonomist. And what they mean by that is that well, they want to apply the moral law and the civil law, but only as far as the general equity allows them to. The tricky part is that the 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 idea that you apply the moral law or the civil law in exhaustive detail, except for the general equity, like that right there, should tell you there's a there's a problem. 
either you apply the general equity or you're applying the exhaustive details. But those two concepts are kind of self-contradictory. So I, I know I'm not going to get into it. You can go to Scott Clark's website to the Heidel blog, and there's all sorts of resources of what general general equity meant to those who use this phrase. General equity is a term that was way broader than just theological terms. General equity usually referred to the, the underlying principles of a given body of law. So you could have the general equity of um, general equity of British Commonwealth law, right? So there, there's a specific application of a law. And then there is the principle that underlays underlies the law. What the divines are talking about when they say that the general equity of the civil law is still in force is they're talking about the fact that the civil law is a particular application of the moral law, right? The moral law is universal. Like we talked about just a few weeks ago, the moral law is universal. It applies to all people. It's available to all people by way of natural revelation People don't need to be taught that stealing is wrong. They don't need to be taught that lying is wrong. They don't need to be taught that murder is wrong. They know it because their conscience and they're, because of their, their, they're still in the image of God. Now they distort it and they suppress it, but they still know it. General equity is um, the, the moral law as it sort of underwrites the specific application of the mosaic economy. So when someone like Doug Wilson says, well, I'm just applying the general equity, the general equity of the of the Mosaic law doesn't necessarily prescribe a particular punishment. Um, in some cases, I think it does, and and that's why this is difficult. Is it? it you're, like you said earlier, it's a hermeneutic question. It's a matter of exegetical investigation and a matter of understanding. Um, so, for example, I I think that the moral law, the the natural instinct of all persons is that someone who murders is to be executed, right? I think that's um, corporal punishment, the death penalty for murder is a natural instinct that almost all societies across all of human history have shared. So I think a good, a good argument can be made that the moral law, as is available to, to you know, natural theology, natural revelation, reveals that the proper penalty for murder is, in fact, you know, losing your own life. So the general equity of the Mosaic law would be that statement. There are others that would make other arguments. So this is a complicated subject, but at the end of the day, theonomy just confuses the purpose of purpose of, and the nature of the Mosaic law in almost, almost every area. It, it treats the civil law as though it's the moral law. It treats the moral law uh, as though it's only accessible through, through special revelation, which doesn't seem to be what the Bible teaches. So it just confuses the law. And then it brings about this idea of a golden age associated with re reconstructionism and starts to confuse the nature of the gospel. Because now the law is bringing about all these earthly blessings, and that somehow is the purpose of the law is to bring about these earthly blessings and to bring about sort of like God's kingdom on earth. Well, that's the role of the gospel. So it's just a it's a risky view to hold. It doesn't make proper sense of the biblical data, and it certainly is not in line with our our historic reform confessions. Even though the reform confessions do probably hold a theory of government and church or or religious government execution, not like execution like the death penalty, but like the in implementation of government as an agent of religion. The, the Reformed Confessions probably articulate a view in most cases that many of us would be uncomfortable with. We wouldn't think that those are necessarily biblical. They're not espousing theonomy the way that someone like Greg Bodson or Doug Wilson does. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I mean, one of the things that I have as my personal critique against this idea of general equity is ironically that it's not specific enough. So. Yeah. This idea, like you said, that you can't really create a counterfactual world, or let's say it this way, there is no counterfactual world that exists, where you might see this played out by way of experimentation or observation to understand how it might actually work. And I think that's problematic because if we were to able, able to see a world in which theonomy was the dominant worldview and by which it was like properly and perfectly applied, first of all, it can't be per perfectly applied. Let me just start there. It can't be perfectly applied, and this is my great criticism, because your example, well, this is an extreme example, and I'm not saying everybody feels this way, but if you come to the place where you're thinking, yes, blasphemy must be punished to the full extent of the Mosaic law, we have to ask, blasphemy at what level? 
because the whole right. purpose of the law is to understand the heart of God and the spirit behind it is the heart of God. So where do we draw the line? And people have said this before. I'm not the first to promulgate this particular argument, but this idea, if blasphemy is the standard, of course, there are those who have no concern for God or his law who will blaspheme him openly with their words and with their deeds. But what about all of us who right. don't approach his name with the reverence it ought to deserve? And that also commit that kind of blasphemy in the smallest way that we think is possible. And yet the standard is that if you do it at all, it is treasonous. It goes against the law. The law is the sharp edge that always cuts you. So I just it's just difficult because this gets to the sense that somehow if we were able to implement it, that things would be better, that we would actually see some kind of fullness of God's presence. But I think the fullness of God's presence that he promises to bring by the power of the Holy Spirit is not necessarily through the law, but in spite of the law or using the law under the virtuous performance that takes place in obedience through Jesus Christ, such that I am covered by the law, underneath the law, because of the meritorious work of Jesus on my behalf. And that means then that even all of my blasphemous activity, which definitely exists, like if any of us are Christians and think that we have not blasphemed God's law by commission or omission in any way, we are fooling ourselves because we do not treat him with the kind of reverence, even in using his name in our prayers or in our understanding or in our readings or in our conversation, as it always ought to be in that high and lofty level as is required, even in our Lord's prayer, that we have not hallowed his name as it is appropriate to do, that we ourselves fall under condemnation of that. Where is that counterfactual world? I don't want to live in that counterfactual world. Yeah. And, and that leads me to my last point and critique of this would be, I would say in some way in the final analysis at the end time, everything will fall under theonomy because God is taking care of administering his law and he is always righteous in his decrees and in his judgment. And he is doing that thing. We don't need to do that thing. And in fact, yeah. he doesn't, I think, prescribe that as what is required for Christian obedience or even for volition. So I do want to affirm though, as we kind of, I guess, move toward wrapping this up or landing the plane or whatever cliche you want to use, that. I think what we're both saying here is there is a great and almost admirable quality of the Theonomous perspective in that there is a desire here, both by way of volition and by way of obedience, to have this great and high view of what God requires. Yes. And that what God requires is obedience and love toward him. And so I really admire that because I think here it's not just this idea of like, let's get more rules and laws because that'll make necessarily society better. But it's because as the guardian, as, I want to say guardians of the galaxy, as, <laughs> as like the guardian of the universe, as the one who's put all things into play, as the one who rules over everything and has all power, who is the supreme being and is owed everything that we have, that means that we ought to obey him, that we ought to have this high and lofty view of behavior and piety. And that law is oftentimes the best way by which we get the standard to know what is an appropriate behavior and outworking of that obedience. And so I'm totally down with that. At the same time that we understand that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill this law in a separate way that moves apart from this strict theonomic kind of application in a literal sense. To yeah. Because the thing is, isn't it way harder to obey the law in the inner being? I mean, honestly, isn't it? Like, it's, it's yeah. way hard. It's easy to be like, I'm not going to kill somebody. But the minute you get a, get caught off in traffic and have these hateful thoughts, when Jesus says that is the same thing, that's way harder. And, and the counterfactual yeah. world would say everybody gets punished. Like, we would all be punished. And those who would yeah. be doing the punishing would be as equally guilty and metting it out as the ones who are being punish themselves. So it is yeah. just problematic. It seems to be turtles all the way down or tortoises all the way down. And so it's just, I think, really problematic to try to think about this, this counterfactual world. The last thing in response to what you said I want to point out is, I think you're right. And this is somewhat like C.S. Lewis style, this idea that there's a proclivity in the human heart to understand that reciprocity by way of law is appropriate, that there is a magnitude of committing offense that ought to be equally meted out in the punishment that adjusts for it or brings judgment against it. 
And so I think recently I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, which has some excellent coverage of this, about the Parkland shooter, this young boy who murdered yeah. 17 people in Parkland, Florida in high school in 2018. And you can go read the article. You can look at some of the testimonies. In the sentencing hearing, you have people standing up and you can tell by virtue of the testimony that they're bringing that they are not overtly Christian or even overtly religious. But what they're invoking is this principle that you've already brought forward. And that is they are calling, they are pleading with the judge to take the boy's life. And they're looking him in the eye and saying, I hope that if you do not die by virtue of the governmental penal process here, that when you die, there are people saying, I hope your maker punishes you forever for what you've done. So again, I want to be clear that what we have here is this great desire to worship and obey God and this innate human desire, which is intractable that God has placed within us to want to seek that justice. But I think that is best handled by God himself. And instead what he gives us in this idea of culture and church is to replicate his love and his, um, what's the way I want to say this? Like the example of the Trinity in service and in community and in accountability and in responsibility, but not in a way that has to become overtly, law presupposing. So yeah. there, there's there's a lot there, right? Like we could talk for a great deal about this kind of thing. I, I just think that sometimes the theonomous discussions are red herring or it's more heat than light. It's a distraction from the yeah. fact that what we have to get after is our own obedience to the gospel, our own submission to Jesus Christ, our own understanding of the law that compels us not to fight amongst each other about whether or not the Mosaic law should be applied in the civil sphere, but what are we doing in service to those around us to bring about and to manifest the love of God with both responsibility and kindness and compassion? I, I think this can just be a great distraction. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to just give a couple quick biblical arguments that I think are pretty close to silver, silver bullets against theonomy. I know that the theonomist would not agree with me. So I want to read um, a quick passage. This is out of Deuteronomy. This might seem like a weird place to go, um, and it might seem like a strange verse to read. But this is Deuteronomy 22, uh, verse 8. It says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should, should fall from it. And then going down to verse, um, let's see, 13. Yeah, we'll just start in 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and then when I came near to her, I did not find evidence of her virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of... This isn't what I'm trying to read. What am I trying to read? Here we go. Verse 25, sorry. But if in the open country, a man... I should have thought about this beforehand. This is why we should sometimes have a safety net. Uh, <laughs> verses 23... 22, Deuteronomy 22, verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then the only man who lay with, only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of the man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. So we have this the statement about building a roof around a railing around your roof, and then we have this this somewhat strange, honestly difficult to apply section about what happens if a man rapes a woman in the city versus if he rapes a woman in the the country. You know, is the woman accountable? And I don't want to get into all of the questions about what this says about victims and believing women and hashtag me too. Those are conversations that are are circle around these texts. But what I want to call out, and this is what the, the theonomous position can't account for. These texts were given to a people who could not apply these laws directly at the time that they were given, right? Think about when, where the people of Israel were at the point that this law was given to them. This is Deuteronomy. So they're, they're not in the promised land. They're not building houses. There are no cities that they live in. So this law is given to a people in a context in which they can't even apply the law. So that means that this law is necessarily only applicable in a certain context. 
right? They can't apply this law about building building rails around your roof. That's a civil law. In theory, the theonomist would say we should apply this civil law in exhaustive detail. So if you have a roof that has access, then you should build a rail around it. Here's the, where the general equity comes in. Uh, that you may not bring guilt upon the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall for it. So the moral principle of this is the sixth commandment. You shall not murder, right? Preserve life. The specific application is that you build a rail around your roof because in this, in the context of ancient Israel, roofs were a place that you had access to and you could fall off of. You couldn't get onto the roof of our house without some pretty significant uh, attempts, right? So I'm not, I'm not required to build a rail. But if I had a swimming pool, then maybe I need to build a fence around my swimming pool so the neighbor's kid doesn't wander in and drown, right? That's Theonomists can't account for this. They can't account for the fact that even in the context it was given, this law cannot be applied. So how then could we say that in this context now, 5,000 years later, 4,000 years later, it applies in exhaustive detail? It couldn't even apply in exhaustive detail at the time it was given. And then there's that phrase at the end there, purge the evildoer from your midst, Right? That should sound familiar to you, because if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, starting in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. This is Jesse's point, right? There's nobody in the world, even Christians, who are not guilty of these things. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I am now writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? So again, there's the theonomy principle that doesn't make sense, is right. you shouldn't be judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church, inside the church, whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul takes the Old Testament statement, purge the evil from among you, right? That's the that's the exhaustive detail of the civil law as is applied to all sorts of different things. Purging the evil from among you in the Old Testament is the death penalty. You do that to blasphemers. You do that to adulterers. You do that to murderers. You purge the evil from within you by, by executing them. Paul takes that and he applies it to excommunication. You cast them out of the church that's how you do it. So in in some in most of them in all of the instances where we see the apostles explicitly applying Old Testament I don't know ethics, penalty law, whatever, every place that we see them applying it, they are not applying it in exhaustive detail. They are drawing a principle out of it. In the Old Testament, you purge the evildoer from among you to make sure that the people of God are pure and you do that by executing the violator. In the New Testament, you purge the evil from among you. That's the principle. But you do that by casting them out of the church, not by casting them out of their lives. So these, these passages, honestly, I know they have answers for them, but I've never found their answers satisfying. It just seems like it's pretty clear when you look at the, these texts in these ways. You just cannot apply the Old Testament law, even in context where the Old Testament couldn't apply the Old Testament law. The people of Israel could not build roofs around their tents. They just, they couldn't build rails around the roofs of their tent. So even that law could not be applied in its context, but the general equity that was given to them when they were at the Mount, was Mount, uh, wasn't Mount Horeb. I don't remember which mountains it was. Um, but when they were at, at the mountain and Moses was giving the second giving of the law, the general equity of, if you own something that has the potential to be dangerous and you don't do everything possible to protect others from that danger, the general equity is that you're responsible for that outcome. So you need to take steps to prevent that. Well, that's something that can be applicable in all sorts of cultures, even in this culture where they didn't have rails around the roofs yet. So I wanted to provide those because sometimes in these conversations, we do miss sort of like the biblical argumentation, and it really is an exegetical conversation. I think that my, although I don't know that I would call it exegesis, but my explanation of the passages that I just gave you, I think that's a more satisfying explanation than what the theonomists give. And that's what this argument, this discussion has to come down to. Yeah, that's good. I think that's a helpful way to wrap it up and it gives people something to bite into. And of course, you were all sensible people. So go back to the scriptures, take a look at those passages, use good resources and pray through them. In a light of that, contemplate, ruminate on what it means. Again, there's a lot here that is useful and helpful. 
in the sense that we want to be the kind of people that are after God's law, but that are obeying it in a way that we understand it properly, especially for our own time and place. But again, yes. the law in it, the scripture is clear is a shadow in of itself. And if we don't look in some ways through the law, that is like we see it and yet we see through it past what it represents into the center and the center of gravity of what it means, then we can lose it altogether. And Paul is very good about reminding us that that's the way that we ought to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. My dog's going crazy, which tells me it's time for us to wrap it up. That's true. So, Make sure you, uh, we're still trekking along, trying to get 200 people in the Telegram group so we can unlock those channels. So if you haven't had a chance to join, please do so. You can go to t.me slash Reform Brotherhood uh, and join up. And also you can check us out on our website, reformbrotherhood.com. We've got all sorts of cool stuff there, mostly our back catalog. Um, you can get some discounts on some Logos Bible software. You can join the Reformation, which just got a whole lot cooler, apparently. Um, <laughs> what other things can I promote? I don't know. There's there's just a lot of cool stuff there. Check it out. We have a merch store. You can buy t-shirts. Uh, but most of all, you know, if, if you want to do one thing to help the show, share it with someone who doesn't listen. Find someone sure. who doesn't listen to the show. Find an episode in the back catalog that you think they would enjoy or you think would be beneficial to them. And I don't know, like put it on a flash drive and send it to them. Email them the link. I don't know. Text message. Flash what? drive. Yeah. I don't know. Put it's it like old like, school. Put it on a, write out the episode on a piece of paper and strap it to a carrier pigeon, send it to them. I don't know. Get that yeah. episode into their hands. So, yeah, I'm kind of like spiraling now. I no, don't no, really no. know. That, that's great. Although I, I want to be clear so we don't get the hate emails that we're not necessarily condoning putting into your computer strange, unidentified flash drives that you receive in the mail. That's not what we're saying here. But if it comes on a carrier pigeon, definitely <laughs> just plug that right into your computer. <laughs> No questions asked. That's true. If that, a pigeon the, drops off a flash drive at your door, you better drop everything and toss that right in your computer. That's true. Somebody help us out with that. Hey, just out of curiosity, how close is the 200 mark in the Telegram chat? Do you know? Uh, I think we're at like 160 last time I looked. So oh, come we're, on, we're loved getting ones. there. We're getting Get in there. there. We, need, we need some help though. So, so please, please join the Telegram chat. Um, but more so just... Listen to the show. I mean, you're obviously listening to the show if you're hearing this, but share the show with a friend. Uh, we really appreciate all of the uh, support we get from our listeners. Right. And I would say no matter what your theological persuasion on this matter of theonomy, here's what you have to do. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>